This episode of Literary Treks is brought to you by Audible.com, offering more than 150,000 titles for your desktop or mobile device. To get a free audiobook of your choice, visit audibletrial.com slash trekfm. Also, help us keep Star Trek discussion coming to you each day by becoming a Trek FM patron through Patreon. Get access to exclusive content and become part of the team. You'll find all the details at patreon.com slash trekfm. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash trekfm. Hey everyone, I'm Rod Roddenberry, and you're listening to Trek FM. these books i thought i'd take some light reading in case i got bored welcome everyone to trek fm's books and comics show i am the host one of those just actually i'm just one of a posse now my name is matthew rushing and i'm so excited to be here with you tonight and uh of course everybody knows that if i'm here Dan's here. What's going on, Dan? Hey, Matthew. Great to be here again. I've never actually been part of a posse, so this is really awesome. It's a day of first. Saddle up, partner. Well, it's gonna be a long journey. <laughs> Some of you may not be coming back. That's my awful John Wayne impression. J- Bruce, save me. Save me. I can't do a John Wayne impression, so you're on your own. <laughs> I can do Brent Spire. Saddle up. Yeah. Lock and load. But that's about there it. There you go. That's <laughs> yeah, perfect. Yeah, I love it. Well, uh, before we embarrass ourselves even more, we have tons of news to talk about this week. Uh, it's it's a deluge of book news, uh, and I'm super excited. In fact, we've got another cover to judge in the Prey trilogy. And guys, I I think that this one just by what's on the cover is going to be sufficiently. Exci- I think it's going to get the stamp. What do you guys think? I yeah, I have to agree. You know, when this one kind of first started popping up on social media, I was like, what is this? This is okay. So we've got what looks to me like uh, a devil, basically, uh, red skin, big horns. Doesn't I don't I don't I don't think he looks a lot like the Feklar we saw in. He's got a mischievous grin on his face. Yeah. And a big uh, Klingon symbol stamped on his forehead i guess or branded or something i yeah and uh, a couple klingon ships kind of in the foreground uh this is a wild cover like i we haven't really seen a cover like this since man back like the bantam book days basically this is this is wild yeah exactly that's what i think when i when i first saw it i'm thinking bantam books i mean it's not exactly like those but that kind of concept of like this big devil on a character and he's holding the world in his hands. We've got the whole world in our hands. But that's my only time I'm singing. And the, <laughs> the thing about it is it's it's an interesting cover. It's different, but it's not that I don't like it, but it definitely would not be my favorite cover. I mean, it doesn't you know strike me as being a Star Trek cover, but it definitely perks my interest. I'm I'm right there with you, Bruce. I mean, this percolates my interest factor. You know, like it it brings it up to like a warp 
9.5, but mainly because I'm like, what the F is going on in this book? Mm. Like, uh, so apparently the devil does like the dance in the pale moonlight. Uh, the Joker was right. <laughs> so uh, I, I, it's just the jackal's trick has me tricked right now. I, I feel like uh, I have no idea what to expect. Um, we did get the blurb with this, and it says, The Klingon Federation alliance is in peril as in never before. Lord Krug has seized control of the House of Krug, executing a plot 100 years in the making. The Klingon cult known as the Usung rampages across the stars, striking from the shadows in their cloaked birds of prey, and the mysterious figure known as Buxus. That's right, Buxus. I think that's how you say that. Buxus Cross launches a scheme that will transform the Klingon Empire forever. Into danger flies Admiral William T. Riker and the USS Titan, charged with protecting the peace forged nearly a century before during the Kittimer Accords, aided by Captain John Luke Bricard of the USS Enterprise. Riker and his officers scour the stars, seeking to find the Usang and uncover the truth behind the conspiracy before time runs out. Yet Commander Worf departs on a deeply personal mission of honor. Hidden sinister forces seek to turn the crisis to their advantage, and the conspirators' plans threaten to spiral out of control, jeopardizing the very empire they aspire to rule. <laughs> exactly! So I feel like you need an evil laugh there! <laughs> <laughs> yeah yeah nope. this i i have no idea what's going on this is insane this is awesome insanity yeah no this sounds i mean there's a lot going on here and and it sounds really cool like yeah i, I love that we're getting the titan and Riker, and you know this kind of seems to be uh like we were talking about before a a series that is kind of doing what destiny did maybe maybe not quite on the same scale but spanning different series and bringing different crews together and and doing different things like that so this looks pretty interesting and i'm gonna blow your minds away because this book with the devil on it comes out just days before halloween Ooh, there you go apparently the unsung not something you want to mess with in the star trek universe uh, I, I'm really interested, I think, with the thing that's most interesting about this book is adding this kind of new dimension, like a cult, to the Klingons, which is very interesting. I mean, we're used to having, like, cultish-type things for, you know, humans, because we have those all over the place. There's there's plenty of cults. Um, so we, we're kind of used to that, but it's going to be interesting to see how this plays out for Star Trek. And for Klingons in general. So I'm, I, I am sufficiently excited, my friends. Sufficiently incited, indeed. I, I agree. This one gets the stamp for sure. Well, Dan, uh, Dayton Ward's new headlong flight came out with a blurb. And uh, man, let everybody know what uh, John Luke Picard and the crew of the Enterprise are going to be off to next after this massive Prey trilogy. An exhilarating thriller from best-selling author Dayton Ward set in the universe of Star Trek The Next Generation, following Captain Jean-Luc Picard and his crew as they explore the previously uncharted and dangerous Odyssean Pass. 
Surveying a nebula as part of their continuing exploration of the previously uncharted Odyssean Pass, Captain Jean-Luc Picard and the crew of the Starship Enterprise encounter a rogue planet. Life signs are detected on the barren world's surface, and then a garbled message is received, a partial warning to stay away at all costs. Determined to render assistance, Picard dispatches Commander Worf and an away team to investigate, but their shuttlecraft is forced to make an emergency landing on the surface, moments before all contact is lost and the planet completely disappears. Worf and his team learn that this mysterious world is locked into an unending succession of random jumps between dimensions, the result of an ambitious experiment gone awry. The Enterprise crew members and the alien scientists who created the technology behind this astonishing feat find themselves trapped, powerless to break the cycle. Meanwhile, as the planet continues to fade in and out of various planes of existence, other parties have now taken notice. <laughs> it always works. You can always yeah, have the sinister laugh. <laughs> totally works. This is um this is really interesting. Obviously, we're going back to uh this area of space that the, you know, Enterprise had been sent to before in the last book that we had with Dayton Ward. So I'm excited that the Enterprise is kind of back to its mission. Obviously, it sounds like it's going to be called back uh, for the Prey trilogy, and uh, then we'll be back on its way. So, um, <laughs> very interesting. Enterprise seems to be doing a lot of backtracking these days. It's kind of like, uh, you know, the Enterprise in Amok Time going back and forth to Vulcan and Chekhov. I think I'm going to be spacesick. Like, we don't yeah. know where the Enterprise <laughs> is going. Is it? Is it here? Is it there? Is it in the Odyssean Pass? Is it back in the Federation? Ah, whatever. We get a good story out of it, hopefully. <laughs> Even the admirals are getting sick watching it go back and forth, you know, on the, the monitors, you know, like, oh my gosh, can Picard just stay in one place at one time? Jeez. They just sit there Somebody looking like watching a tennis match. <laughs> exactly. Or, you know, Pong. Yeah. Pong. <laughs> it's the Star Starfleet version of Wimbledon. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> oh, goodness. Well, that's not the only blurb we got, Bruce. We got a brand new blurb there for... David R. George III's The Long Mirage for the next Deep Space Nine book. And uh, why don't you let everybody know what's going to be up in this new Deep Space Nine? Well, novel? I would be happy to do that. Continuing the post-television Deep Space Nine saga comes this thrilling original novel from New York Times bestselling author David R. George III. More than two years have passed since the destruction of the original Deep Space Nine. At that time, a brand new state-of-the-art starbase has replaced it, commanded by Captain Roe Laren. Still, the crew and residents of the former station continue to experience the repercussions of the loss. For instance, Cork continues his search for Morn, as the Loren, his best customer and friend, left Bajor without a word and never returned. Quark enlists a private detective to track Morn down, and she claims to be hot on his trail. Yet, the barkeep distrusts the woman he hired, and his suspicions skyrocket when she too suddenly vanishes. At the same time, Kira Norris emerges from a wormhole after being caught inside it while it collapsed two years earlier. She arrived on the new Deep Space Nine to discover Altec Dan's already there. While in the Celestial Temple, Kira lived a different life in Bajor's past, 
where she fell in love with Altec. So why have the prophets moved him forward in time, and why have they brought him and Kira together? (laughs) (laughs) I don't know that the evil laugh works quite as well there. I mean, is that the prophets laughing with an evil scheme? I don't know. It's kind of interesting. I think it may be Morn, because have you ever heard Morn laugh? This may be the first time we hear him laugh. Ah, there we go. Guys, you weren't supposed to, like, spoil the surprise for everyone. <laughs> they were going to get to hear Morn for the first time. Ah, oh, gosh. Sorry, guys. I didn't mean to ruin it for you all. That was really Morn. That wasn't me. <laughs> well, <laughs> our bad. <laughs> Too bad well, we can't um, cut that out or something. Oh, well. It's done. <laughs> yeah, no, we can't. There's no editing that happens with the show whatsoever. I'm, so. I'm pretty sure it's um, live every yeah. time anyone ever listens to it. Oh, it's 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 like when you're listening live. Uh, it, yeah, exactly. It's fantastic. But this is interesting, and I'm going to be wondering where everything's going to go. There's some storylines that have been there, obviously, since Revelation and Dust, actually, you know, that uh, have kind of been in the background, bubbling to the surface. And so I'll be hoping that they finally kind of resolve here in this book, and that Deep Space Nine, I, I feel like... I'm ready for Deep Space Nine to really move forward, you know, mm-hmm. um, and and really start moving the characters forward. You know, I, I'd love to see Quark move somewhere as a character. Roe, you know, his kind of her flirtation with, you know, Quark and all, resolve that finally. I want to find out about Vic, you know. I want to know about what's going on with Cisco and his crews. They're apparently now off, you know, in, in the Gamma Quadrant, that kind of stuff, how all that works together. And I'm I'm hoping somehow we're going to finally get an answer to this Bajoran question. And will that somehow maybe bring Cisco back into the fold as emissary prophets, all that kind of stuff. I, that's what I'm hoping for. So we'll see. So there, there's a lot up in the air right now with Deep Space Nine. I guess I'm ready for it to finally land on the station. Mm-hmm. <laughs> for sure. Well, uh, man, the kind of, parade of back cover blurbs continues because we've we've got yet another one here to talk about uh this one another kirsten Beyer voyager novel which i think gets all of us pretty excited uh we've got architects of infinity coming up uh Matthew. i'm not gonna lie i was doing my hampa dance <laughs> oh so. absolutely were you guys doing your happy dance <laughs> yeah bruce's type bruce stop happy dancing on the show nobody can see you <laughs> it's getting this distracting. Is bad podcasting <laughs> yeah <laughs> Wish everybody Put your shirt this. on, brother. Put your shirt on. <laughs> okay. Uh, okay. But He's yeah, got his shirt uh, back on. Now, don't worry, everybody. Um, so let, let's put, I'll, I'll, I'll just read it to him, Dan. Perfect. So that we can, yeah, we'll get back on track. Um, an original novel set in the universe of Star Trek Voyager from New York Times bestselling author. As the Federation Star Trek Voyager continues to lead the full circle fleet in its exploration of the Delta Quadrant, Admiral Catherine Janeway remains concerned about the Krenum Imperium and its ability to rewrite time to suit its whims. At Captain Chakotay's suggestion, however, she orders the fleet to focus its attention on a unique planet in a binary system. Are they going to find Luke Skywalker? Where a new element has been discovered. Several biospheres exist on this otherwise uninhabitable world, each containing different atmospheres and features that argue other sentient beings once resided on the surface. Janeway hopes that digging in 
to an old-fashioned scientific mystery will lift the crew's morale, but she soon realizes that the secrets buried on this world may be part of a much larger puzzle. One points to the existence of a species whose power to reshape the galaxy might dwarf even the Krenum. Meanwhile, Lieutenants Nancy Cologne and Harry Kim continue to struggle with the choices related to Cologne's degenerative condition. Full Circle's medical staff discovers a potential solution, but complications will force a fellow officer to confront her people's troubled past and her own future in ways she never imagined. Don't really think we should laugh at that one. <laughs> yeah, it, it, it kind of felt inappropriate. <laughs> ha ha. Um, <laughs> this one looks really cool. I, you know, I mean, I, I think we pretty much gush over Kirsten Byers' uh, Voyager books every time they get mentioned on the show, but for very good reason. I mean, you know, this one has me excited. Like, I love how they continue various threads and and carry on through, and. Uh, yeah, the the whole Nancy Conlon and Harry Kim thing, I, I really enjoyed kind of the exploration of what was going on with her character in the last book. And I'm really glad that this is something that's going to have repercussions going forward. And it's not just kind of a one-off thing that doesn't get brought up in the next book. And I think maybe just watching too much Voyager has me afraid of that. But I've got to remember, no, this is Kirsten Beyer. She excels at this stuff. Well, I was hoping that they would find Morn in this book from the last book. <laughs> <laughs> but I guess Morn didn't go out all that far. But yeah, I'm excited about this. I don't even think I need to read a blurb. I just know that another Voyager novel is coming, continuing that storyline of the uh, Full Circle Fleet and Admiral Janeway and crew. So I'm definitely on board this one. And I do like uh, the Nancy-Harry relationship. And I'm, I remember when the last book ended, I wanted to see what happened next with that. So I'm glad that's being addressed in this one. I'm really excited to read this one just because I know that Kirsten, you know, last time we talked, she'd said that this one does have a uh, slightly friendlier feel. You know, um, they're going to be doing the classic Star Trek thing with the mystery and all. So I'm really excited to see that. Um, I love that we talk about, you know, as Federation Starship Voyager continues to lead the full circle fleet. And yet who's leading the fleet is actually Admiral Janeway and she's on the Vesta. Uh, but uh, that doesn't make sense to people who don't read the novels as much as we do. So, um, but I'm, I'm so excited to uh, check this out and uh, see where we're going to go next. And like you, Dan, I think it's wonderful that she's weaving in story threads that kind of go throughout the entire series, you know, and, slowly you know like every four or five books a certain storyline will kind of wrap up and the next one kind of begins and so i'm i'm just grateful that happens and i can't wait to see what we get here um and lastly what's fantastic you know uh, last time we talked to david mack he was talking about how busy he was going to be with his uh solo projects you know non-star trek related works and he wasn't sure when his new Section 31 book was going to be out. But Dan, we've got a blurb for it. And dang, don't it sound good. Man, give it, give it to everyone. From the New York Times bestselling author David Mack comes an original, thrilling Section 31 novel set in the Star Trek The Next Generation universe. No law, no conscience, no mercy. Amoral, shrouded in secrecy, and answering to no one, Section 31 is the mysterious Covert Operations Division of Starfleet, a rogue shadow group pledged to defend the Federation at any cost. 
The discovery of a 200-year-old secret gives Dr. Julian Bashir his best chance yet to expose and destroy the illegal spy organization. But his foes won't go down without a fight, and his mission to protect the Federation he loves just end up triggering its destruction. Only one thing is for certain. This time, the price of victory will be paid with Bashir's dearest blood. <laughs> I thought that one felt, you know, oh, that yeah, was authentic. Organic. That was real. Yeah, totally. I mean, because I just don't care about. Oh, no, I'm just kidding. Uh, I <laughs> God, I can't wait for this one. Um, you know, the only thing that all of these blurbs have me thinking: where is Esri mm-hmm. and the Aventine? Hopefully, they will be a part of this uh, control book because. I have really missed her and the crew. Or maybe she'll be part of the Prey trilogy because um, we know that um, John Jackson Miller isn't afraid to to use the Aventine in Dax. So, uh, but man, I'm so excited to to get this book from David, and I'm I'm kind of hoping that this will resolve the Section Thirty One series so that we can have Bashir back on DS Nine and back with his best buddy, because I kind of miss that interaction. But these books are so good, that it kind of makes up for it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, uh, I, I agree with you completely. I'd love to see Bashir kind of back in the fold. Um, and it feels like we've been waiting for this one for a while. And and we have because of, of you know, all the other things that have been going on and and how David Mack wasn't quite able to get back to this as as soon as I'm sure a lot of readers would have liked. But you know, it's coming. We're going to get it. And uh, man, I'm really excited about this. So uh, this was one of the things when I saw it on the news, I put off reading the blurb. So I didn't read it until I just read it out loud there just to kind of preserve a little bit more excitement about this because yeah, no, I love Bashir and I really can't wait to see how this, uh, how this story goes here. Yeah. These books of Bashir have made him one of my favorite Star Trek characters. I've always liked him in Deep Space Nine, but he's grown on me even more and more. So he's definitely one of my favorites. And, you know, I feel that the novels have been building up to this moment. Uh, Bashir has been wanting to get back and take down Section 31 for some time. And I know in the last book, he kind of declared that war against them. And this this is the payoff. This is what it's all building up to. So maybe this is the one that does it in for him and he gets out of Section 31. Or maybe this is the one that leads to the next one. But I, I don't see it going another book past maybe one more book past this one but uh it, it's it's going to be time to wrap it up i i just i mean you know next year it's it's going to be a plethora of of good star trek books would you say we had a plethora of good star trek books oh you see see a plethora <laughs> so anybody who doesn't know the three amigos just stop what you're doing go watch it now Dan, before we get into the feature and I get way off on a quoting tangent, where can everybody find all the info about literary tracks and find us online and all? Well, Matthew, you can find literary tracks and indeed all the podcasts here on Trek FM anywhere you get your podcasts. Uh, We have shows covering all corners of the Star Trek universe and beyond. If you're an Apple user, you can of course find us on iTunes. And while you're there, please be sure to hit that subscribe button, leave us a star rating, and if you have the time, a review as well. This really helps us, of course, rise up in the search results and makes it possible for Star Trek fans to find all of the podcasts and specifically Star Trek book fans to find literary treks. If you're not an Apple user, though, we've got you covered as well. 
You can find our shows on Stitcher, TuneIn, SoundCloud, Windows Phone. You can stream and download the MP3 file from our website, grab the RSS link there, and basically any podcast catcher you use, you can find us on there. If you want to get into contact with us, we have a form on the website at trek.fm slash contact. You can leave us a voicemail there as well. We'd love to hear from you. Just look in the sidebar on the show page or go to speakpipe.com slash trek.fm. We're on Facebook at facebook.com slash trek.fm, and we're also on Twitter at trek.fm. While you're on Facebook, check out the Babel Conference, which is our listeners-only group. Uh, we have discussions there about all aspects of the Star Trek universe. Just type Babel Conference into the search field, B-A-B-E-L, or go to our website at trek.fm and click discussion on the menu bar. Special for Literary Treks, we also have a Goodreads group. You can find bookshelves there with all of our previously covered books, as well as what we're currently reading, so you know what's coming up for future episodes. And of course, there are also great conversations happening about all the books and comics there. Just look us up, Literary Treks, on Goodreads, and one of us will let you right in. Guys, we have something really big for everyone. Uh, we are going to be continuing on with the relaunch of the Enterprise series, which we haven't covered yet. And we've gotten to a book that was very unusual for its time. Uh, when this book was released, it came out in a trade paperback form, so in the larger paperback form. And the book was quite extensive, quite big for a Star Trek book. A lot, a lot I mean, really, uh, it was, I mean, we're not used to a book of this magnitude. And um, I, I love that they did that. I mean, I thought it was fantastic. You know, when the book first came out, I wished that Star Trek books, you know, maybe instead of doing hardcovers, because they'd really stopped doing that by this time, to do this. You know, it's kind of the nice in between. And um, their plan had been to do three of these books in this series and really kind of do this amazing, expansive Romulan War. And that's what we're talking about tonight. The first book in the Romulan War series, Beneath the Raptor's Wing. And I think that's the first thing to bring up, guys. This book has an incredibly expansive view. Uh, and I, I'd like to say, I, I think it, it has an audacious premise compared to a lot of other Star Trek books. And so I wanted to ask you guys, showing all of these different aspects and, and kind of how widespread the impact of, of uh, this war is on coalition space, what do you think, you know, um, as, as we get into a book that's, it has a scope and a feel that we don't really get in most Star Trek books, yeah, I, I don't even know how to ask the question, but I think you guys know what I'm talking about. What about you, Bruce? Yeah, this book is 450 pages long, and uh, it does cover quite a bit of territory, various uh, planets and, uh, you know, different crews and, and, and the Romulans and the Vulcans and so on and so forth. Uh, and I think it turned out to be 85 chapters, which is unusual for a Star Trek book, but these uh, chapters are pretty short. Uh, I would say an average of like two or three pages, but... You know, it, it really does show the scope of the universe, and I think at a very important time, because with the Romulan War, 
this is a big historical moment in Star Trek history that we're finally getting on page. So I can understand that they want to approach this with the with the attitude of we it can't just be an enterprise book. It can't just be Jonathan Archer and the crew going and finding some Romulans during a war and and that's your story. So I appreciate the fact that they want to expand uh into the government, into the news press, into all these other things that you would find within the Federation. And so I enjoyed that exploration of going through all these different dimensions and different places within the Star Trek universe, which is a small universe at this point. But it's, at, at times it, it got a little redundant. But, um, but I did enjoy that. I think it was, it, it was a good start. It was a good, it was a good idea. I don't know if it really worked perfectly yeah i i find myself agreeing with a lot of what you say there um you know my favorite stories are ones that really get into kind of a wider view kind of steps back from the setting a bit and looks at uh a more expansive view of what's going on and and this book certainly does do that you know we get a lot of stuff with for example, the uh, news media and how they cover the war. We get a lot of like all the different planets involved, Vulcan, uh, Romulus and Earth, the government and different colonies and that sort of thing. And so on paper, I really like that idea. I really like that ambition that they have in telling this story. However, where I think it really loses me is it just ends up getting really bogged down in minutia and at times feels like it's really meandering a lot when you know maybe kind of i don't know if 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 quicker looks at the various areas that we're talking about in this book would have helped or something like that maybe more of an overview rather than uh just you know there's so many instances in this book to me where uh, for example, the author lists every single person who's in the room listening to this speech in one sentence, and it takes up half a page. And I'm going, okay, move on. Like, what's going on? Can we have something happen rather than just kind of describing everything all the time? So, you know, yeah, I find it gets a little bit bogged down and it kind of doesn't have the kind of laser sharp focus that I think this kind of premise would need to really be able to pull it off. Well, And I think also the first time I read this book, I, if I recall, I didn't read it all in all within a week uh, of picking it up. I, I think it took me several weeks, a month or something. I don't know. I know it was something I could put down for a while and I came back later, days later, read a little more, put it down. I just remember it taking some time. I think it's because there was that pace, that pace isn't there to keep it flowing and keeping it moving fast. So, so I felt like I could walk away from it and come back. So this time to prepare for the show, I reread it and I did it within like what, four days, five days, something, whatever it was. And it worked better for me now because I was more engrossed into the universe over a short period of time. So I think if you try to go through it faster yourself, it's going to read better than it would be to drag it out for a few weeks. And one of the things that um, I noticed about the book that kind of, and, and a lot of Star Trek books will do this, but this one specifically, especially we have so much Romulan stuff. Don't, give it to me in in the Romulan term. I don't speak Romulan, you know. 
Baxter. You know I don't speak Romulan. Uh, and so it's 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 frustrating because it's like just give me the just say uh, human, right? Just say day. <laughs> just say day. Just say night. Just say hour. Just say minute. Just say don't give me the Romulan term for that and make me try and figure out exactly what they're talking about. It's very very frustrating to me. I know it's supposed to seem authentic, but this is Star Trek, and I know that where when it's a Romulan talking, they're all speaking in Romulan. I don't need you to, you know what I'm saying? Like mm-hmm. it's just a very frustrating thing to me because it brings me out of the story because I'm literally just kind of skipping over words because even sometime in the context, it's not kind of clear. Does that mean hour? Does that mean day? What does that mean? It's just like just give it to me straight because I, you know. I don't speak Romulan. Mm-hmm. I know what I, I, I really started to notice this. The, the more I was getting into the book too, they really, uh, the author really almost tries to have it both ways. Cause so many times it would be just Romulans talking and they would say like, Oh, it's the planet Arawa, whatever. Or, you know, as the humans know it, blah, 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 blah. Well, they wouldn't say that. So just give us the human name. Like it, now it's just, unnecessary padding yeah. almost and it just it was starting to drive me a little bit nuts for sure well and uh, you know I, I think when you're reading this book and, and if you put in the back of your mind that the writer is expecting to have three of these books all the same type of length you can understand why this book is the way it is unfortunately this series will get cut down to a duology which means that everything has to get crammed into one more book, and it kind of becomes what you were talking about, where we just get really short snippets. And that doesn't... No, I don't want to say that. It, okay, it doesn't work either. Just, I'm ruining that podcast when we talk about that book, but it didn't work for me then. Mm-hmm. So the I, I appreciate, like you said, there's this outrageous ambition... For this story, and I understand what they're going for, but you know when big battles happen and they happen off screen or off page, and basically it just told me what the wrap up is. You know, oh, this many ships were destroyed, and it's like you pull me out because it's like nothing feels really super momentous because we're not really building to anything because I just get the replay. You know, it's like watching ESPN after the game, you know. You're only getting the highlights. Well, here it's like, you know, I'm only getting the highlights of the story. But then after that, there's there's all this, there are some really interesting things that happen and then they just don't get enough time. You know, like I'll say, legitimately, Trip disappears for a ton of this book. Hmm. And then all of a sudden comes back, you know, but he's missing for like 150 pages. And then all of a sudden he comes back in. It's just like, I think you said it best, Dan. There just needed to be a better focus to the book and cutting some of the storylines out. You know, I get the, the what they're trying to do with the media and everything, but I think that that's taking away from the story itself. You know, Star Trek... As much as it's trying to be relevant here, I think, and some of it is a little bit relevant, I'm missing the actual story because of it. And and that's frustrating. Yeah, no, I, I, I agree completely. Um, and, it, and it's funny because, like you say, we get so much uh, 
of that where there's just the wrap up and we don't see the big momentous events on 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 screen quote unquote you know we don't we don't get to witness the events we just kind of get told about them afterwards but then the book takes you know so much time to explain like i was saying every little minutia detail of something that's you know not maybe as momentous or as central to what's going on in the story or I, I, I just, yeah, and I feel like the focus is just really off here and it just kind of meanders. And it's interesting what you said too about Trip being missing so for so um, such a huge part of the book. I found that about a lot of different plot points. You know, I'd come back to something and be like, oh yeah, that, right. I remember that from, you know, 15 chapters ago. What's going on there now? Okay. And that happened, you know, way too much while I was reading this. Yeah, it's less of a war book and more of a political book, maybe, uh, because it doesn't focus so much on what's going on during the battles. So this isn't a battle book. This isn't. I mean, you're going to see some battles, and you're going to, but but it's it's really about politics and are the Vulcans going to participate or not? Which I know we're going to talk more of, but it's. But I also enjoyed the fact that it was trying to be big and maybe it didn't work perfectly, but I like the fact that we were seeing the Romulans conquer different worlds and it wasn't all at once. And it did feel like the span of a year, Uh, because I think that's what the book is trying to do is show you, you know, the first year of the Romulan war and how it would just build up and and all the decisions that the Federation or I, I shouldn't say the Federation, the coalition has to make in order to address this Romulan attack. And, uh, and and the attacks aren't just all in a week. This is, you know, maybe one attack is one month and it may be weeks or months until another attack happens. So I appreciate it because it felt a little more real than something that's trying to take place within just a week of itself. But it did t- tend to maybe kind of get off course a little and lose some focus. It is. I, I like how you put that. It is interesting because this book has much more of a focus politically and through espionage. So there there is much more of a focus on that part of the war as and and how that's playing out to impact the other places that we get to impact these big battles. And I think that that is pretty fascinating. It's just it's not as as focused to really bring it all together as it should be. And I think that's probably just the frustration that we all have. Like, there's great ambition, and there's a lot going on here, and a lot of it is is good. It just doesn't continually keep the interest the way you would want because there are parts where you're strangely in a lull, and you're like, "Why am I bored reading this?" You know. Um. And and I think that's that's where the frustration comes in, and it unfortunately. It didn't have to happen. I think some some editing would have uh, done well for the book, and just cutting some things out, or cutting some things down, or reshifting some storylines, or something. Because the other thing that's really interesting about this book is that it start it's all out of order. Mm-hmm. It starts in the future, and then it goes back in time to tell you basically uh, how you get there. And the book actually ends chronology wise before the beginning of the book. 
So it's very odd. Um, you know, I'm not I'm not exactly sure why that is the way it is. I, I don't think it needs to be like that. Um, mm-hmm. I think much more of a straightforward story would be better. Uh, and it is kind of odd too because um, I forgot this is the book where Columbia disappears and never comes back, and that's also feel like that kind of happens very strangely and, and it's not given a lot of anything <laughs> yeah it's kind of archer says oh we haven't heard from the columbia in a month basically and then that's where you're kind of like oh that's when that happened oh okay but yeah there's there's very little and i mean i i, I guess probably the reason for that is you know you read destiny then you find out what was happening on columbia and you get it from their perspective and here it's just a big mystery, but they don't even really call attention to that very much. It's just kind of mentioned offhand and then not mentioned again. So yeah, it would have been nice if there was a bit more of a uh, kind of pomp and circumstance around that, even if just to get more people to be interested in that story and go check out Destiny, you know? Yeah, I when that part came, I thought, is this when they go missing? Because... Just because he hasn't heard from Columbia doesn't mean that's when they've gone missing. Because in the previous book, Kobayashi Maru, there was a time where they didn't hear from Columbia after a battle. And they wondered how the ship was doing. And so Columbia has this history of not uh, reporting in for a while. So, uh, yeah. And so when I read this, I actually had to go to memory beta because I wanted to see, wait, was this really the time they went missing or does that come later? And you're right. It was in this book, but it didn't really shout out to me. Oh, this is that thing that leads to destiny. It it just you you wouldn't have known if you never read destiny. You'd never even think anything of it. You'd expect Columbia to show up in the next book. Is this just Hernandez, you know, not calling back Archer, you know, after a romantic moment? Is that, is that what ghosting. it is, just playing well, hard to get? Anytime they get you know? together, there's other people around, so they can't do anything. That's true. Unlike Tripp and DePaul, oh who, gosh. wow, they do stuff a lot. Oh, my gosh, I was sweating yeah. during that one. <laughs> well, that's. I think that's a good uh, time to move on to the characters and how do you feel like Martin is able to convey those characters, you know, whether it's Archer, Trip to Paul, and, and kind of those big moments, you know, Travis's disillusionment with Archer's command and all. Uh, does it work for you guys? This was one area where I actually, I appreciated a lot of the choices that the author made here with respect to the voices of the characters. I thought that was captured fairly well. Like, you know, Archer seemed like Archer, to Paul, I think, came across really well. And I actually do like the storyline involving Travis. I think it gives the decisions a little bit more weight and it, you know, kind of makes that, you know, matter and and weigh on Archer's conscience and stuff. I I feel like maybe it gets dragged out a little bit too much. But at the same time, I like the idea that these are real people and not just kind of the same faces we'll see on the bridge forever and ever. And, you know, everybody's always happy with every decision kind of thing. I I really like character growth. I really like uh, changes and real life effects on people's psyches. So, yeah, I I kind of actually appreciated the Travis storyline. Yeah, I did, too. I like the Travis storyline. I like when Travis and DePaul are together. And I don't mean just sexually, but, uh, you know, just... You mean Tripp and DePaul? Because Travis and DePaul, that's a different story. Did I say Travis? Oh, my gosh. Well, that would be interesting, too, wouldn't it? (laughs) 
<laughs> no, I mean Trippentapol. I like Trippentapol's story. I like Travis's story. But the only thing I see, you said it, Dan, that you thought it dragged on. I what I wanted more from Travis was to get more in his head about his uh, his distrust and his and the confidence he lost in Archer. I felt like that could have been been played out more. Uh, I, mm-hmm. I felt like he just said to Archer, "I'm leaving the ship. You know why? Yeah, I know why." Travis going on your way and you know then we then it seemed to focus more on the fact that Travis served on two or three different ships and he was known as the guy that everyone thinks he's he's cursed because every ship he now flies gets destroyed or crashes somewhere and I just would have liked to seen a little more of his thinking about about Archer and leaving the Enterprise and what and and his uh family missing I just wanted more of that mm-hmm. for Travis. But the other characters, um, I would have liked more of Shran. Uh, wasn't enough of him. and uh, But all the others I, I thought were spot on. I would have liked maybe a little more humor in some scenes. But um, I, even Hoshi I thought was, was good. And talking uh, to the... Uh, to the new crew member or whatever about, uh, you know, space sickness and how she's gotten over it. So I like those. Yeah. Regarding Shran, like he doesn't even show up till about halfway through the book. Doesn't he? Like I, I remember seeing Shran show up and I'm like, Oh yeah, where's Shran been? Yeah. And he wasn't around for very long. Mm -hmm. Ah, I love that Azur man. So great. I I wish there was more of it in this book is what I'm trying to say. Uh, Shran is fantastic. Oh, I do have to say, I the one scene that I kind of wished I'd seen in Enterprise, and they actually did it in this book, was when he goes to Mayweather and starts calling him a pink skin. And the, wait, um, that's not right. <laughs> yeah, maybe not yeah. everybody's pink skin. <laughs> I mean, chocolate skin. I mean, I'm just going to shut up now. Uh, yeah, that is very funny. No, I, I think that... The characters themselves, they come off as as the characters from the show. You know, um, I completely agree with you, Bruce, that what needed more fleshing out was that storyline with Travis. Not the one where Travis is with Paul, like I said. (laughs) Yeah, the one. Yeah, that was really awkward. Uh, But what it needed more fleshing out for was because. I'm just left with it feeling it's kind of hollow. You know, there's not enough there to really make me feel that Travis, the guy who was like Captain Archer's biggest fan, would all of a sudden, just because of one incident, not understand what his captain is doing and why he's doing it. To me, it doesn't seem realistic because it's not getting enough time. It's just like oh, well, I've been in space my whole life and I'm a boomer and I'm not happy with the way you handled that situation with that other ship that was full of boomers. You know, it's like, that's not Travis. Mm. So if you had done a better, you know, if it had been given more depth, I think you do have a real story there because I think the setup, almost, it's almost there. You know, it, it just doesn't have enough to get it over the edge. Um, yeah. And I, I think I agree with with Bruce there, too. If we'd have seen more of kind of Travis's uh, perspective and his, you know, inner monologue about that incident and less just about how it affected Archer, then, you know, that would have made 
made more sense and kind of felt a little bit more real. Like it's kind of left up to us, to the reader, to put ourselves in Travis's shoes. And, you know, that kind of works. But yeah, I, I, I kind of forgot about the, um, the aspect of Travis's family being lost too, and how that really contributed to that as well. And, you know, to get more of that from Travis's perspective would have been really helpful, I think. But I, what's, what is great is the interaction between Archer and Paul and Reed and Hoshi, you know, Hoshi feeling like maybe she's just, maybe she's in the wrong place. You know, uh, how is she using her gifts for the best? You know, and Archer convincing her to stay. I love that. And yeah, I, I'm I'm a huge shipper for T'Pol and Trip. So them having more time together in this book, I thought was fantastic. And I love the interesting ways in which they continue to figure out how to keep Trip from being able to come back to life, mm-hmm. which you know they have already set up in. The the and they will set up at the end of the next Romulan War book exactly what happens to Trip, mm-hmm. uh, and to Paul. They will give us the end game, but they give the other writers opportunity to get us there. So it, it's just it's really fascinating, and um, those two characters I just love. And and honestly, I loved that to Paul and Trip finally, especially to Paul came to this realization. She's like, I'm in. I've made the jump. We're together, no matter what happens. Um, I'm in this for yeah, the yeah, like that haul. scene when she's and, getting ready to leave Vulcan and say, and and he was going to yes. go with her. Then he decided he's going to stay, and she didn't care who the driver seeing her. She was just going to embrace Trip and kiss him goodbye. Mm-hmm. So romantic. <laughs> Hearts it, all aflutter. It, <laughs> it it was romantic. I oh I yeah. Just, I've, you know, you feel lucky for, I mean, you just, if you want to be Trip. I did want so, to be Trip. Um, but you know who was missing from <laughs> this was Phlox. I mean, he was in the book, but very little of him. That's mm-hmm. true. Yeah. It is interesting that so much of this book happens and Phlox is, is barely in it. And I think that's one of the things, you know, I I appreciate the scope of the book. But when you lose characters like that because you're so focused on other things, you know, Star Trek books can be expansive and everything, but I also think that you have to walk that fine line between the focus on the series characters. Mm-hmm. And some of those series characters do get lost yeah. in this book. And it's it's the struggle, I think, that if anyone, when you're writing after the series, because there's so much you can do, you're so free, but at the same time, you're really not that free because we as readers are coming back for those characters. Yeah. There was kind of that one chapter where we get him kind of, uh, you know, regretting the fact that he's become, you know, a battlefield doctor again, but did anyone else feel like that was, you know, he'd written the book and then went, Oh crap, I don't have anything for flocks. I better stick this chapter in there that, you know, it really felt like, Oh yeah. And flocks was there and yeah, it certainly could have happened. You know, the editor could have said, hey, what about Phlox? Oh, yeah, wait, let me throw something in there. Because there was very little of them. But that's the thing. I mean, with Star Trek, you don't need a, a book to focus on every character. And, and they don't, I mean, heck, even in the series, not every episode focuses on every of the, the main crew members. But, yeah, in a book this big, I think, I, I think Matthew, you're right. It's like, 
it's almost like let's let's make this a little more about Star Trek Enterprise and not so much about the Romulan War. I think this book is a Romulan War book that has a Enterprise title to it as opposed to being an Enterprise book that happens to take place in the Romulan War. No, I think that hits it right on the head. And it's the reason I think that the book was so expansive to begin with and was meant to be this massive trilogy because it was really going to cover this most important time in Star Trek history. And I think they were trying to do it uh, the same way that you would get with you maybe had, you know, three seasons to tell the show. That was the point. And then they just didn't get that. So, um, you know, one of the other really interesting things about the story is this idea of media and wartime. And it's a huge part of the book. And, you know, kind of, I guess that boils down to the question, what is the role of media in war? And then do people really have the right to know everything about what's happening in that war? You know, uh, Abraham Lincoln would disagree that you do <laughs> uh, just read about your Civil War history. Uh, you know, so I-, I think this is really, really interesting because the impact that it can have. I mean, look at World War Two and, and the propaganda films on all sides, but how they were beneficial to, you know, especially the allies and all that kind of stuff. I mean, just it's a really interesting question, uh, especially as we live today, a lot like the Star Trek universe, 24-7 media. And, you know, um, you got to fill up that airtime with something. And if you're in a war, you're you're trying to fill it up with anything and everything. They could have cut this part of the book, but it is an interesting part for sure. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, this is something. And, and again, you know, how well it plays out and, and how well those parts are written kind of influences my, you know, should it have been there or not. But, you know, generally, I really like, like I was saying earlier, this expansive look at what's going on in the universe. And the media was a big part of it. I really, I thought it was really interesting kind of showcasing the two journalists and how both of them had a role in shaping public opinion about the war. And both of them uh, basically championing very different uh, viewpoints on it. So I, I, I really liked that idea about, you know, public opinion. And I kind of almost wish we would have seen more of the perspective of the average citizen uh, rather than, you know, just uh, the Starfleet brass and the crews kind of watching the new newscasts kind of thing. But like, you know, we got a little bit about the protests and that sort of thing. But, you know, how much of an effect were these reporters really having and, you know, what what did that mean overall for the for Earth and the coalition? Like, you know, were they getting a lot of pressure one way or the other kind of thing? You know, we don't really see that. But I like that idea. And I I think it could have been really, really interesting if it had been. Uh, and I keep coming back to this, a, a sharper focus and more tightly plotted there. You know, it's interesting. I hadn't thought about it not having any perspectives uh, from the civilians. Uh, during this time, uh, as much as this book covers, it doesn't cover that. And that would be a really interesting piece of this. But the the press, the media involved in this and the two uh, different reporters having uh, different viewpoints. It's really interesting because, I mean, that's exactly how the press is, of course, here on Earth. And, you know, their viewpoints affect how the story plays out. And one can have a viewpoint of the wars, uh, 
the coalition isn't working. They're not doing anything to protect anyone. Another one is a pacifist and peace, love, and joy. And we're getting different perspectives of this war. And even to the point that, you know, how much of your viewpoint needs to be involved in your reporting on a news story or just report the facts or do you throw in some of your viewpoint and your frustrations of how you think the war is going? Is that really effective? And how much information do you divulge? Because that's one way the Romulans figured out about the Vulcan sensor net to detect warp vessels was because it was in the media. So, and then now you've got politics involved where you have uh, an admiral going to the editor and telling him to pull his reporters back and using politics to make that happen. So, I mean, it wasn't something that was my favorite storyline in this book, but uh, I, I did find it an interesting piece to it. And, uh, and of course, one of the reporters is Gannett Brooks, who is Travis's girlfriend, or he dated her or whatever. So that's a call from the series, too. It's a really interesting thing because, you know, the media has such an impact, uh, you know, and, and and the reason that it's here in this book is because, you know, when it's being written, uh, we are in a war with Iraq and all of those kind of things. And reporting had such an impact on, you know, that in Afghanistan and what people thought of it. And the responsibility of the media and do they have a responsibility is a huge part of this question. And what I love is that Martin doesn't answer the question for you, which is nice. If he had come down on the side, I think that he would have really hurt the premise of what he was trying to do, which was just portray what it's like and then let you make up your own mind, which is what Star Trek books should do. It shouldn't necessarily give you the answer. Um, And, I, I really liked that. I thought it was really well done for the most part. Um, I think, again, you know, where the focus, especially with Gannett Brooks, uh, the beginning storyline, she's on Mars with this Indian tribe and everything. I don't know what that has to do with anything in this storyline, really. It, it doesn't matter. It's inconsequential to the rest of the book. So, um, uh, you know, the the when it came into real play was you know when we started talking about there being a pacifist uh ba- reporter basically saying we need to pull back and kumbaya and you know peace love and rock and roll man um you know and and you know Gannett is on the other side saying where the hell is Starfleet you know why aren't they here why aren't they protecting us why aren't they doing their jobs you know um and it just reminded me of those sides you get on, you know, Talking Heads Media. You know, you have the two polar opposites on there, and nobody's being reasonable. And I thought that was really interesting, is that neither of them are being very reasonable about their questions or their ideas. Uh, and that's a big part of this book, too, is, you know, what's the right thing to do and why are we doing it? And which I, I think leads us to a really interesting question that we do get in the book, which is, you know, war. What is it good for? Because this is a big question that the, the Vulcans are really struggling with. Will they lose their best selves in the fog of war? You know, will they revert back to what they used to be, especially with Velas as their leader? You know, they've made so much progress towards logic and, you know, peace and... Will they lose that if they decide that they need to be at war? And 
It's a really interesting question, especially when we talk about what Saval says to Tapao uh, later on at the end of the book. I thought was really fascinating. And just kind of the hypocrisy, too, of the Vulcans and what they're doing in the war that nobody else knows about. So I, I just wanted to talk through that with you guys because it's a really interesting and fascinating question. Yeah, no, this is one aspect that I thought was really interesting, like a vault, like a post-Cyranite Reformation Vulcan at war. Like, what does that look like? And, uh, you know, it's really interesting because, you know, they're basically the Vulcans we know through Spock in the original series. And, you know, violence is something that he will do, but as an absolute last resort and usually with some sort of, you know, high-minded high uh observation that humans are are violent and, and that sort of thing and that's not the sort of thing we do so i thought that was a really interesting thing to explore here and yeah soval's words really obviously kind of made an impact there it was it was really interesting to kind of see where that was going and and uh and then of course what happens at the end what's that going to do now so you know the vulcans have lost uh the the well we're going to spoil the book obviously the vulcans have lost the katra of surak it's been destroyed and is gone forever so you know what impact is that going to have now i i you know this is one part where okay the books the end of the books kind of got me i'm really fascinated to see what goes on from this point forward i i had a i had a hard time in the beginning with tapal in the with her pulling away vulcan pulling away from helping the coalition and earth in this war because it's very early on in the book that this is established and throughout the book saval and 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 to paul are trying to get her to change her mind and it's just a constant play in this book where they go to try to change her mind and they don't and then somebody tries again and she still doesn't change her mind and i kept waiting for her to change her mind and nothing was happening <laughs> with that and i was like why are we keep going back to this why do we keep trying and nothing's happening and i didn't feel like any new information was revealed of course until later in the book then saval you know points out to her that it's it's fear that is driving her motivation and not the logic of trying to be a pacifist and, and trying to keep peace and that's what vulcans are all about but at the same time there's things going on in vulcan where they're supplying arms to a planet that is against the romulans so you know there are there are Vulcans who aren't about peace and there are Vulcans that are of peace, but to have them just watch step away and say, we're not going to do anything. Oh, well, we'll give you the sensor net. We'll do that. They'll, they'll help you detect something that's coming so you can fight them so that you can have the war. We will give you an advantage of that. Well, if they're going to do that, then help them develop their ships, you know, help, help more technology, advantages to this war or do something more. I just felt like they were taking too much of a backseat to it. It, it kind of bothered me. I wanted to kind of kick their butts. <laughs> well, I also think that it's really interesting too, that, you know, from my perspective, it almost is like they're using this idea of Surak pacifism as an excuse, because we do find out that, you know, one of the, the initial reason they're not, they pull out basically is they discover that, you know, their technology is kind of close enough to Romulan technology that it's very easily taken over. So it's it's almost 
um, a little bit too high and mighty of them to claim that it's just, you know, all this pacifism and that sort of thing. When that, that's not why they pulled out initially. It was, it was because of this, uh, vulnerability and the fear kind of as Saval almost susses out the fear though, is that they will be discovered to have this close link to Romulus, which, you know, might destroy things further. So it's, it's, it's kind of interesting. They're, they're kind of wanting to have it both ways. Like, oh, we're, we're pacifists. But, you know, if that wasn't the case, you know, like you say, they're supplying uh, sensor technology, they're providing arms to this other group. Clearly that's not all that's going on here. And yeah, it's a little bit of an excuse. Well, almost. if they want to be honest with the coalition and Earth, then they should say, you know, our ships are going to be more vulnerable to the Roman ships that can take over and control other ships. And so that's one of the reasons we have to pull out or, you know, use us in other ways. But I feel like they're dishonest with the coalition and they tend to be dishonest with themselves. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Yeah. Well, and, and what was interesting to me, too, was this idea of pacifism with the Vulcans. And I'll be a little political here for just a second, but it kind of reminded me about how America is a asked to like be everybody's savior, but nobody else is doing anything. Vulcans are almost looking at Earth like this, and eh, they'll take care of it. If, if you feel like something is worth fighting for and, and freedom is worth having and your way of life is superior, um, or at least you want to be able to have the freedom to live your life the way you want to against an enemy that clearly wants to conquer and control you. I mean, the Romulans are the aggressors here, and they have started this war, you know, it, it, and it's not like they saw Earth encroaching and, and the coalition getting bigger and thought hmm, maybe we should talk to those guys no they thought maybe we should conquer those guys you know so like the logic here there's no logic to what to pow is doing other than the logic of her fear which is driving her that if they find out that we're related to our these romulans that, that we're basically the same what will that what will they do to us you know and it's paul tells her the secret's going to come out, and when it does, it ain't going to be look pretty worse. because it's going to look like you. Mm. Yeah, it's going to make it worse. Exactly. You know, it's like if Bill Clinton all over again. Just tell people what you did, and they'd be more likely to forgive you quickly than if you make this big hullabaloo, you know, and lie about it. You know, we don't like our politicians to lie to us, and we don't like our friends to lie to us. So yeah, you're really asking for trouble if you keep lying. To your quote-unquote friends i almost got this image of the three of us being like a political punditry talking head show talking about the vulcans not getting involved in the romulan war <laughs> like this is the kind of talk show that would happen on earth media during the romulan war yeah i want exactly. nancy kind grace of funny here. Image i want her nancy grace on here to tell y'all what those vulcans should be doing Anyway, that's my Nancy Grace impersonation. <laughs> Welcome to the Matthew File tonight. Uh, we've got a breaking news story for you. The Romulans have evaded. No, I'm just kidding. Um, anyway. <laughs> now, before you go any further, I have to say here. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> yeah, exactly. No, I, I. it makes for an interesting question. I do think that the way that they portray it here, it's clearly written to put you on the side of, you know, humanity and that 
things are worth fighting. And I'm on that side too. I mean, regardless of, of how it's written, you know, there is a time and a place for war. Uh, there's a time for war and there's a time for peace. And some things are worth putting your life on the line for. And, uh, you know, against an aggressor here like the Romulans who have no compulsion about destroying and wiping out whole colonies, you know, destroying whole starships with and, and murdering people in lifeboats. They're trying to get away. You know, they've escaped the ship. It's blown up. They, they destroy the lifeboats. I mean, it's, it's not good stuff. And on top of that, I guys, how many NX-class ships can we lose? I mean, what's going on? Yeah, and I mean, you, you count the Columbia in there, which, you know, we find out what happened to her in Destiny. Man, they lose a ton of their, you know, state-of-the-art ships here. And, uh, yeah, no, it's 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 kind of depressing every time one of these, you know, newly minted ships uh, gets blown out of the sky. It's quite sad. It's the Travis curse. <laughs> That's why they all <laughs> crash and burn. But, no, he didn't fly all the ships. Um it it is interesting because I think we've got uh, five. The Atlantis was the last one, the NX five, and yeah, the the three, the four, and the five are gone. The two is missing, and the Enterprise NX one is the only one remaining. Which, by the way, was a bit of frustration for me because there was really very little action from that ship until we really get to the end of this long book. So. I felt the Enterprise was taking a back seat uh, in this story, in this novel. And for this to be titled Star Trek Enterprise, it needed more Enterprise and it needed to be more involved. So maybe it's it's a little more safe for the Enterprise to kind of hide out wherever it was doing. Uh, and I'm sure, you know, in the next book we see more of that. But I also found it fascinating that, let's see, it was uh, the engineers were working on making the NXO the NX ships less susceptible for the uh, takeover device from the Romulans by kind of going backwards with the technology in the ships with buttons that actually are like that stick out and are colorful. And Hey, wait, that's like the buttons we see in the 23rd century. So I thought that was a funny call out of going backwards in a sense with the technology and it explains what we see in the original series. That actually, I, I have to say, both the first time I read this book and this time here, that drove me absolutely nuts. I, <laughs> it's kind of it's one of those things. Like if you watch In a Mirror Darkly, for example, they don't change anything about the way the Defiant looks, and yet it feels really futuristic compared to, you know, what we see in Enterprise. And it's it just it really strikes me as one of those things that people like to try and explain away that I don't think needs explaining away. And uh, like, I, I think it was perfectly done in one line in deep space nine, when Dax looks at the tricorder and says, I just love classic 23rd century design. Like, uh, I, I, it's just one of my little pet peeves that really bugged me about this <laughs> book that I'm like, Oh, you don't need to explain that. That's just how it looked. Stop it. But yeah. It, the fact that, in the end, we're left with the Endeavor because that's the ship that'll end up being what T'Pol has in the Rise of the Federation series. 
and uh, the Enterprise. It's just crazy. I mean, come on. Um, I, I have no idea if it was a mandate to retcon, you know, so we get rid of most of the NX ships so we don't have many left. But I, I felt like it was a bad cheat. It, it just felt disrespectful to the NX class, you know. Now, I can understand them saying these ships are a lot more expensive for us to build because these are our most technologically advanced, but we could kind of get close enough with that soccer ball and tin can that we've got, so we'll just make more of those. Uh, that made sense, mm-hmm. you know. Uh, but just destroying haphazardly all of the NX ships, but two, I was just like, come on, this is... I uh, left a bad taste in my mouth, honestly. And the fact that Travis was flying two of them. I mean, come on. That's just... I, Travis is a better pilot than that. And I mean, he was flying the second one after he'd been called, you know, this cursed pilot. It's like, oh, man, you don't have to do that to his character. Come on. No. No, you don't. Okay. Well, I I think the the main question becomes, what would you guys end up rating this book? You know, and after all that we've talked about, Bruce, where do you end up uh, putting this one? So, I... I did enjoy the book the second time more than I thought I would. Cause I remember the first time reading it, I just thought, eh, you know, it was okay. But like I explained earlier, I think because I, I put it down and I'd come back to it later. And this time I read it uh, a lot quicker. I went through it faster. So I enjoyed the book more so this time, but uh, it's, it, I mean, I would say, you know, it's average. It's it's good. I liked some of the, you know, it, it feels more like a history book. And it's interesting because you said in the beginning that the, you know, the start of the book takes place further in the future and then goes back. So it's almost like we're looking at that time periods, uh, looking back at its history. So it almost reads almost like it's trying to be a history book. So I say that I will give this, this is tough. I would say maybe three Romulan control ships out of five. This is, this is a really tough one for me because uh, there, there is a lot about this book that I really like, you know, uh, I like the ambition of some of the choices that the writer makes here. Uh, The execution, however, leaves me cold because I think this could have been a lot better if it had just been edited down quite a bit And, you know, this is kind of something that gets repeated a lot. And I don't know how true this is, but, you know, I really remember loving uh, Michael A. Martin and Andy Mangles books, like the two of them writing together. But I'm really lukewarm on a lot of Michael A. Martin's solo books. And this was kind of the first, uh, I think the first anyway, of his, you know, solo outings um, after he and Andy Mangles no longer wrote together. And it just, yeah, like the difference to me is striking. Like it feels like there needs to be another voice here kind of reining in some of the the parts where it just gets bogged down in the minutia of details that really kind of get me to look away from the page and yawn and okay, well, let me get back to this now, you know. But like I say, there's a lot of ideas I really like in it. It just needs, you know, a little bit of editing, so... I think I'm going to have to give this one a fairly low rating, which I hate to do, but uh, I'm going to end up giving this two out of five NX class starships, which is all that Starfleet ends up with at the end anyway. <laughs> so there you go. Um, I like this book less than I did the first time I read it because I looked at my Goodreads rating 
for the first time, and it was a four. So yeah, I think that I'd rate this uh, actually three Daedalus class ships, which, man, if you've seen the picture of those, those things are awful. Uh, I don't know who thought those were a good design, but a soccer ball and three tin cans lashed together, not attractive. So, uh, and, and I hate saying that about the book, but um, I'll be interested again because I, I have never reread the second Romulan War book, so we'll see where we go from there. You know, one of the highlights of my week is really getting together with you guys and talking about Star Trek books, even when maybe they don't quite hit the mark and uh, they're not quite the best Star Trek books. It's still a lot of fun to kind of hash out these ideas with you and really dig in deep into what these books are about. And, you know, some of these discussions get, you know, way deeper than I ever thought they would. I I love uh, being on the show lately because it's making me read reread these books and who knows when I will have ever reread them so I'm really enjoying rereading them and then discussing them and I no matter you know if I give something a three a five or whatever I'm loving reading these books there I, I just love Star Trek books I I'm right there with you guys I I'm so glad that we get the opportunity to do this and we have great associate producers that make that happen we have Will Wynn, Ken Tripp, Brandon Shamatola, and this guy named Bruce Gibson. Uh, yeah, yeah, that's right. He's sitting right across from me, metaphorically, here online. You guys can't see him. <laughs> I'm but, throwing wow, money at you right Trek now. FM t-shirt. Yeah, it's awesome. Thanks, Ken. Thanks so much, Bruce. Uh, but they understand that we can't do these shows without the support of the listeners. See, Trek FM is a listener-supported network, and... The way that you can support us, making sure all the content comes to you each week, go to patreon.com slash trekfm, and you can see how you can make that happen. We have some goals that we'd love to reach. We have some great perks for you as well. So go to patreon.com slash trekfm and see how you can become part of our team today. Now, uh, Bruce, uh, when you're not trying to uh, find a place to live on Vulcan as you do your spy work, where can we find you? You can find me on Twitter at Admiral underscore Rex, and you can find me occasionally on the Star Wars Report podcast and StarWarsReport.com, and I'm in the Babel Conference quite often. And Dan, uh, when you're not getting NX-class ships shot out from under you all the time, where can we find you? Man, I tell you, the the one I had was mint in box and they just blew it right up. I mean, they don't make a lot of these things. So, uh, you know, when I'm not uh, trying desperately to keep these things from being blown out of the sky, you can find me on Twitter. I'm at Kertrats. That's K-E-R-T-R-A-T-S. I'm also on YouTube. I've got a new channel on there called Kertrats Productions. And uh, I'm also on Facebook, uh, facebook.com slash Kertrats Productions. And you can also find me on the Babel Conference talking about all things Star Trek all the time. And uh, Matthew, when you're not trying to convince Starfleet that the best design really is blinky colored lights and toggle switches, uh, where can we find you? Well, uh, you know me and Tobin Dax, uh, that's our plan. So uh, well, you can find me on Twitter at MattRushing02. You can also find me doing the orb here on the network, Chris Jones, talking about Deep Space Nine. I'm doing uh, another show on the network called The 602 Club. We talk about all things geeky. Uh, We've just had a great time covering 
the Independence Day films. We've also covered uh, the brand new extended edition, the ultimate cut of Batman v Superman and so much more. So be sure to check out the show, The 602 Club. It's a blast. Uh, And uh, of course, uh, if you're interested, I do have a blog. It's called 42lifeinbetween.wordpress.com. Well, thank you so much for joining us. And until next time, live long and read on. You call that light reading? To each his own, number one. Recording. Recording. We're recording. Hello, and welcome to another episode of Literary Treks. I am your host. Have to do uh, Major Barrett. Recording. <laughs> recording. Nice. That is a commentary fragment that was founded in 1836, known to pass through this planet from time to time. Oh, uh, that's only that's too good. <laughs> that's yeah. I'm like I shouldn't have even tried to do that. That's that's amazing. Yeah, that's... <laughs> oh gosh. Okay. <laughs> they should have hired you for Star Trek Beyond. <laughs> Hey, I'm free, guys. I'm free. Uh, Man, that's a great stinger right there.